Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You're listening to Good Grief, a podcast about grief and how we develop, learn, and form meaningful traditions around it. Hello and welcome to Good Grief. My name is Jay Gearing. Before we get into this episode, I want to briefly talk to you about why I'm making this podcast series. If you want a more formal explanation of that, then please go and check out the first episode on the podcast list, which covers why I'm why I started this podcast series. But for for new listeners or anybody that hasn't heard that short introduction, I just want to informally tell you before we launch into the first episode now i have lost a few people in my life by now i'm getting older so that list is getting longer uh but one of them struck me um as particularly difficult it wasn't particularly difficult with my own grief what struck me was my inability to be able to help others um that were experiencing grief but also knowing what to do like i didn't know what to say apart from those normal platitudes that you say to people. So I was kind of stuck, not knowing how to help people, but also realising that obviously I was experiencing sadness, but I didn't know what to do for myself. And it struck me that I don't know much about how to deal with bereavement. Not with um, friends that are experiencing it, nor for myself. So... I decided to make a film about it. Uh, I didn't make a film about it. I am a filmmaker, by the way. So this was, uh, it wasn't just one of those pipe dreams of someone, I'm going to make a film. Um, I did want to, and I did research a film. And I came to the end of that research and realised that actually this question is huge and there's no satisfactory way of summing it up in a film. Uh, documentary obviously but years later I came to the conclusion that maybe I should be doing a podcast and the reason why I thought I should have been doing a podcast is because of the conversations I had during the research process I had a lot of genuinely good conversations and different insights from different people each conversation was different in itself so I wanted to share that with other people and so here I am now, what struck me when I was doing the research was that maybe this is a British phenomenon. I don't know that for sure, but maybe it is. And maybe that stiff upper lip and uh, that, that, that sense of just getting on with stuff is really 
ingrained in this inability to talk about grief and share grief with each other. And that certainly came up in the conversations I was having in different ways, but we'll, we'll explore that through uh, this podcast series. Um, oh, and on a side note, I'm a normal working class bloke, uh, so I will get words wrong, um, make words up in bushisms um, and all that kind of stuff, which is exciting, I think you'll find. Right, without further ado, in this first episode, which was recorded in March 2022, I talked to Lynn Booker. Lynn has been working as a counsellor therapist since 2004 in all kinds of different contexts through the NHS in a hospice and more recently with the Refugee Council working with refugees and asylum seekers. Lynn initially trained at the University of East Anglia doing a Masters on Person-Centred Counselling and wrote a dissertation on complicated grief. Lynn has a Jewish background and became Christian when she was 19. She was born in London but grew up in Reading and now resides in Lincolnshire with her husband. She also enjoys life drawing, being a mother, although all the kids have now flown the nest. And fairly recently she became a grandmother. Okay, so in this podcast we talked about a lot. Um, And so therefore it's an unnaturally long podcast. Um... I don't really feel the need to apologise for that because you can actually stop listening whenever you like and restart it whenever you like too. But I'm just warning you that this is over an hour and a half and that's not including this ramble. So, yeah, there you have it. Um, But there's a lot of good stuff in there. We started off talking about Lynn's training in person-centred therapy, why she wanted to become a therapist and her own personal journey, which includes a breakup with a partner she was very much in love with and the loss of her parents, which triggered a re-evaluation of her relationship with them. We also talked about the importance of meaningful tradition around grief, a loss of family ties and sense of community, refugees fleeing war, including PTSD, the different stages of your children growing up, and a sense of loss of the person they were as we celebrate who they become. Surprisingly, we talked about football grief and masculinity, plus Lord of the Rings. Um, But I must uh, warn some of you out there that there is lengthy conversations about child loss and miscarriage and stillbirth. Uh, We do talk about what we can do for others that are grieving, including what to do with our loved one's belongings when they're gone, amongst many other things. So here we go, conversation with Lynn Booker. When you, you know, when you train as a a counsellor, if your training's any decent sort of training you have to come to terms with you have to express explore your own stuff Mm. and I was very fortunate in that my training which was person-centered training um absolutely stripped us stripped us naked emotionally (laughs) by plunging us you know five and a half hours a week into completely unstructured agenda-free process groups so, you know, the tutor would just say, we're started. Right. And then an hour and a half later would say, we're finishing now. And what happened in between was completely up to the sometimes 10, sometimes 20 people in that group. 
So it, 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 it's in, in that context, it's raw, absolutely raw, whether your people are hiding, trying to take a lead, trying to analyse, trying to burst through that and be themselves, trying to hide and pretend they're not there. You know? yeah. But that training, that, that was the basis of everything that I do and as a therapist and most of what I do as a person, really. Right. Just to clarify on that therapy session, though, uh, not therapy session, the the training, mm. you, you're not just left in a room to go just talk about whatever you want. You know that there's something you are meant to talk about, right? You're 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 all there to bring something like you would in a therapy session. I, you don't come into therapy and just go, I'm just going to talk about the weather. Yeah, absolutely no agenda at all. Right. <laughs> Except, obviously, you know, you're, you know that you're on a you know, you've paid to do a therapeutic training yeah. course. But if somebody wants to come talk about the weather, that's what they'll talk about. And then what's, what's the, uh, how the other people feel about that, how the other people react to that might become the stuff of learning in the session. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm so you know, fed up with you, pissed off with you because you never come to the point, you know, why don't you talk about anything real, etc. You know, after a few weeks that might come out. You know, you always take this approach in this group. Why do you always do this? You know, mm-hmm. and you get a lot of conflict and other people that back off from conflict and other people that feed the conflict, you know, <laughs> enjoy it. And, and then then you, people start to challenge each other. And then so the whole thing happens. But there's no agenda at all. There's no, absolutely nothing we're meant, to talk, we're meant to talk about. I think, personally, I think it's the best, best sort of training for, you know, life. <laughs> Life and therapy, mm-hmm. because it's chaotic. In this, it, it can be very chaotic, and yeah. so that's better because you are able to n- navigate what's ever thrown at you. Is is that why you? Well, feel you sometimes better? navigate it. You sometimes hide from it, but you learn about yourself. Uh-huh. And if you learn about yourself with these nineteen other people who are all very very different, after two years of that, you're likely to be able to stay real with whatever your clients bring up or throw at you or choose not to say or keep in silence or, you know, you've, you've been through the mill a lot in that group and you've learned to trust each other, sometimes very painfully, but you've learned that you can sort of survive. It's about surviving. You can survive 20 minutes when nobody says anything. You can survive somebody hurling abuse, which happened to me, <laughs> across the room at me. You know, I survived, didn't like it, it was horrible, but I survived it. And it te- it, 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 it does enable you to survive what happens with, with clients and stay grounded and stay, you know, accepting and, and understand that there's a process that's happening there and if you just trust it, it something worthwhile might happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, different, different counselling trainings are completely different from that, but that was my... That was the two years that I went through, with lots of theory as well. But those, that five hours a week of process groups was that for me. That was the real, the real training. That was, yeah. And what brand of therapy was this? Person-centered. Person-centered. Carl Rogers. Mm-hmm. Carl Rogers, who did used to do process groups of fifty people, you know, for a whole day with no agenda. Mm. <laughs> and what attracted you to do that particular course? Oh, I can't really remember now. I think I just, the more I read about it, the more I felt, yeah, that sounds like me, more me than psychoanalysis or 
you know, something that was very structured. I just felt, yeah, I can, I can get that, you know. And it, and the great thing is that as a person, as a person, as a therapist, you don't have to remember very much. I've got absolutely terrible memory. So I don't have to remember the tools or remember the tricks of the trade or remember how the theory works. I just have to remember to be myself and, you know, accept the other person and, and just, you know, use the empathy and stay congruent. That's it. It's quite simple. Yeah. <laughs> and what, why, why did you want to do therapy at all? Why did you want to get into... Ah, well, um, again, that, you're talking a long time ago, started off doing therapeutic training in my 20s and I was working in a probation hostel that was the start of it and then I dropped it I started off doing some therapy training then and I got completely megalomaniac about it so I started therapying all my friends and you know really enjoyed a sense of kind of um, satisfaction and power and, and all that and then I, after a few months I thought this is really bad for me <laughs> This is really, really bad. I'm enjoying the this far too much. Absolutely. I thought actually it's really going to be damaging to me and other people. So, I, And I left it then for a long, long time till, till about, I don't know, about 48 when I started training again. Okay. So, yeah, by that time I was sort of a bit more ready. Right. Yeah. So the young you was maniacal yeah. and yeah. inflated with, re- <laughs> yeah. with power. Yeah, absolutely. And- <laughs> I had all the skills, but I didn't have any of the understanding or of myself or anything right so So you didn't get into it in any way it wasn't related to grief it was it was just the therapy side of things you wanted to it wasn't related to grief at all but you i'm right in saying that you did your dissertation on grief is that right i did do my dissertation on grief and that was because well, now this is a difficult story, and I'm not going to get into it, into too many details with this. That's fine. But I had a big, big love, uh, which was very, very painfully ended. Big love affair, which ended very painfully, and that that was what made me think if I could just create a create a space while well, while I was training, create a space to explore this grief, which was pretty terrible actually um uh, it would be very helpful if i gave this some some space i'd had the nearest i'd come to it before was in my 20s 26 and i'd had a really terrible broken engagement i'd been been engaged to somebody i was passionately in love with and it just didn't work and i it ended horrible really horribly and i I literally cried every day for two years after that. I used to get back from work and shut myself in my room and just howl for an hour. And that was that was the biggest grief that I'd I'd ever experienced. And yeah. I mean, yeah, that's that's interesting for two well, two things come to mind. The first being that you are not differentiating <clears throat> grief of a loss of someone that's died with the loss of somebody that you were in love with and it's it's not going to happen mm. um i mean psychologically do you see any difference at all between the two uh, i mean there's lots of different kinds of 
bereavement by somebody dying and some of them are even more difficult than than others so maybe maybe we can talk about that a bit you know mm. later on but I, I think um essentially you're talking about the same the same thing um you're talking about the loss of an attachment um I hesitate to say attachment object but because that's a different kind of <laughs> therapeutic modality but you know i mean atta- attachment in, in in any understanding attachment is a is a an, it, something the entire biological system the whole person the whole body the whole mind um, of mammals of, of all mammals um, attaches for survival and then the loss of the attachment person is an absolutely devastating whole body um, experience that completely experienced physically and biologically um, so whether you're talking about by death or through loss of love or separation or in some other way it's a it's an entire biological reality as attachment is and loss is as well so um you're not talking about something essentially different mm-hmm. and in some ways i think the loss of a, a, a love where there's been that real attachment is almost worse because the person's still walking around somewhere when they're dead, you can grieve them, you can mourn them, you can do the work. Sometimes when they're still alive, you don't start to do that properly. Mm-hmm. There's always the hope they might come back. You know? right. And it's uh, and eventually very... you can you you intentionally kill them off yourselves, right? So you you well, they, you know you cut all ties and you get to cut all ties or. The, person marries or mm-hmm. you get married or, or something you know but um my, my own experience of of those losses were absolutely huge i far far worse than the deaths of my parents for example far far worse um, can you explain to me why i know you've just partly explained some of the they're still around and all that kind of stuff but i mean without getting too deep into your family issues as well or whether there are any or not but what can you sum up can you say the core differences are this is why this was way more painful is it like is it because it's rejection rather than rather than a loss of someone that's died which is obviously that that doesn't criticize you in any way whereas if someone is saying they don't want to be with you then it's then it hurts more because they are saying it's you rather than someone dying and that's not your fault. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure uh, quite how to answer that really. Um I think when my when my parents died uh, my dad was 72, my mum was 86. Um I was, you know, fond of both of them. Um it was a shock when my dad died. It was a very sudden heart heart attack. My mum had dementia and you know it was very very sort of slow and not surprised at all when she died um and i was i was fond of them i had a bit of a bit of a difficult relationship with my mum in some ways very fond of my dad um but i was i no longer needed them i didn't need them i'd well you know moved away from home and 
away from that life and I was living a completely separate life and I was married and I had children and you know I had my own my own attachment people there my own family um and I didn't no I didn't I didn't need them I don't think so I think it that made it sort of much less less difficult on the other hand I've worked through many many years since then of thinking about my relationship with them more I have to say more and more as I get older I you know I I I went through a couple of years sort of thinking of collecting photos and making sort of memory books and you know talking to the staff in the care home about my mum and trying to you know remember help them to see she had been been a young woman once you know Mm. um and um deciding what to throw away and what I kept my dad's jumper for about three or four years one jumper was all and um and then gradually got rid of more and more sort of stuff and but I thought about them and appreciated them more, I would say, a few years after they died than I did when I was, you know, a child or when I was growing up or when, you know, when they were there. And I think that process will go on to the rest of my life, sort of realising that I, I am my mum <laughs> in so many ways, <laughs> you know. We will get to that stage. Realising just what I've sort of gleaned from them, how what I inherited, you know, in terms of personality and, and uh, my own, uh, you know, I'm, I'm from a, a Jewish background and um, just how much of, of essential Jewish nature sort of came from from them. Whereas I'm an only child. I think I think for an only child, you, you, you're either very, very close to your parents or you have to kind of break break free of them. A bit. And I had to break free of them. And uh, did that, you know, quite quite big time, really. Mm. Uh, so it's slowly, slowly, come, almost coming back to them, almost coming back to find them again. It's been nice, uh, nice. I've enjoyed it. It's been a nice process. Um, so you've been finding them again recently? Yes, over the last few few years and, and, and meet, meeting up with my cousins and talking a bit about my parents. And, um, and why do you think that is, why is that happening now? I mean, I think this is this is another sort of story, really, but it's a, it's another loss as well. That you know, I, I'm from a Jewish family, Orthodox Jewish family, but I became a Christian when I was 19, and that was a big separation, very difficult indeed. And parents were absolutely furious, you know, and, and um, yeah, it was a big, big loss, big separation, um, and it it it, it was difficult. It was difficult, and I had a big separation from a lot of my extended family who I've barely seen really you know since since then you know very occasional see them at funerals <laughs> really weddings bar mitzvahs funerals <laughs> uh, but not really much in between and um, it's been quite an unusual so really this sense of creating a, another family with with you know William and the kids has been very important to me that's been my roots because the other roots were well uprooted so it's been quite a long journey really long process of finding something again in that finding how i want to relate to my jewish jewishness Mm. again yeah so did uh, just taking it back to where this line of questioning started Mm. did this uh, so your your 
dissertation was based mm. on grief, but it was based on grief of mm. of losing loved ones. Uh, sorry, mm. of of unrequited love. Well, it, it was my experience, and it was in interviewing five people who had had um, either relationship breakup or m- more than it was bereavement, mm-hmm. very traumatic bereavement. And it was about what they call complex grief. So it's grief that gets stuck or grief that is not. See, the thing was grieving. So I'm, what I said about attachment before being a huge you know, biological process. When it goes well, it happens. Nobody has to give a mother or a baby a book about how to do attachment. You know, the baby looks at the mother and the mother looks at the baby and the milk comes down and the attachment begins and forms. It's completely natural. And so is so is loss. So is separation and loss. So our bodies know what to do if if allowed to grieve our bodies will take us through that process. And it's completely natural. So the the pain, the tears, the feeling in your throat, the feeling of heart break and and pain in your your heart, all the biological things that happen around loss are the natural process, completely natural process that our bodies know exactly what to do if that we're allowed to do it. Mm. Our problem is that very often we're not allowed to do it because it's too difficult for other people to witness us doing that and it's too difficult for ourselves. We feel ashamed, um, don't want to cry, you know, don't you know, people maybe after six months after somebody's died, your neighbours sort of might say, you know, feeling like you're feeling any better, you know. And well no, I'm feeling absolutely bloody awful but I put the smile on when I come out and so do you and everybody does and you know but actually the process of mourning and grieving and crying and thinking and remembering and dealing with clothes and photos and all of that will happen if you just trust trust it but it takes a long time it can take years doesn't happen in five minutes Mm -hmm. that's what we're not very good at i think yeah i mean this is this is you're speaking directly to why i started the podcast series in itself i mean i think um when i first started researching this it was for films or a film i wanted to um create a film about grief because i'd lost somebody and i was what struck me most from all of this stuff was from all the research and the people that I spoke to was how unprepared for the inevitable I was like this is an inevitable thing for everybody right like mm. the, like nobody's you're going to be incredibly lucky to get to the end of your life without losing anybody whatsoever I mean that's mm. or you know completely unloved by everybody so you don't lose anybody um and it I was just really struck by the lack of any tradition as a as a white British man, like the, the and a, as an atheist as well. Mm. I, I use the term atheist lightly, actually, maybe more agnostic. Who knows? That's mm. not mm. for debate. Mm. Um, but other other cultures, other religions will have the the set pieces uh, I was I saw a great thing by I've got his name actually where is it um, K 
Kevin Toolis. I'm not sure if you no. have heard of him. He's an author. Um, and he did a great video on, I think it was BBC Ideas. Really, really interesting about Irish um, wakes mm. um, and talking about not the, the, the stuff that you might see on television, which is... Um, you know, everyone get just gets drunk, and then there's a dead body in the room. There's it's a really beautiful process and a tradition that that harks back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Mm. That is still still done ex- pretty much exactly the same way. And you do have the body in mm. the house, mm. but you also have lots of people around. If you the person's dying, you can have lots of people around and kind of cradle. I think he uses the term cradle them into the next life or mm. cradles them into death. Mm. Um, mm. And then you just move the body a little bit further and people come round on a regular basis and the, and people um, give space to the different types of mourning that happen into, in the room. And um, that goes on for days and days and days mm. and kids of all different ages are there. And, you know, there's, there's, there's an appropriate amount of stuff that happens around death, whereas my experience of death is very sanitised, very mm. um, hands-off. It's, well... That person has died. You won't. You won't see the dead body. This is, you know, if I'm talking about my own grandparents, for example, both of them, I, w- I would not have seen their body. The only time that is ever slightly real is when the coffin turns up for the on the day of the funeral. Then you go and you have a very short collective time where you're all allowed to cry together and talk about the person that you've lost, and then they're cremated or buried or whatever. And then you go away and you don't talk about it again. And that's that. Like there is no, mm. I mean, maybe because I was a lot younger than I am now that I'd, I felt like there wasn't much of it. But, you know, now I'm older and I've lost people. There is a, a moment where people come together and they talk that's outside of the formal setting, but there's none, there's no tradition. There's no celebration. There's no, there's no book to go by. I guess where I'm going with this is, 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 from your experience, how important is tradition around the grieving process? Because you were saying how if you allow people, even though it takes a long time, if you allow people to go through the grieving process, it's obviously really beneficial. How, how, how much is that linked to even either Jewish um, tradition or Christian mm, mm. from your perspective? I mean, I think that the Jewish tradition is uh, in some ways it's really helpful with with this um so it was in jewish tradition the, the actual burial who is a burial is incredibly fast so there's no sort of hanging around for three weeks you know devising a funeral service and waiting this happens that you know it's got to be by the end of the third day after the death so it could be like the day after tomorrow you know um uh, it's very very quick and there's nothing to decide in orthodox middle of the road orthodox judaism which is my tradition um it's all set down you you've paid your dues to the jewish burial society um you know, your whole adult life and the burial society does does the stuff you know and the service is a set service and there might be a little eulogy written by the by the rabbi or somebody but you know it, there's, there's, there's no flowers there's no music there's you know it's very quite bleak um so the the body is buried very very quickly but then you you have what's called sitting shiva so it's seven days when the immediate family 
stay at home and sit on low chairs around them. It's obviously special low chairs. And everybody comes to the house and brings sweets and brings cakes, um, as you said. And, and then the rabbi comes every night and leads prayers. Um, the men in, in, again, in my orthodox tradition, the men in one room and the women in another room. And that's all completely set. But for seven, so for seven days, you're surrounded by people all the time. And then there's a month. Um, forgive me, I'm not terribly clear on exactly how these things work. There's a month when you do things differently. And then there's a year. Um, so for that year, there's certain things that happen or don't happen. And then you have a, a celebration at the end of the year with lighting a special candle. So that, I think, is very helpful. Mm. Is recognition, you know, as... I think we used to have in this country, you know, people would put a black cloth over a mirror mm. and, and draw the curtains closed, you know, so everybody knew that the house was in mourning, that family was in mourning. Um, and I do think those things, you know, wear a black armband, those those things are helpful. It's a sign, isn't it, that you're in mourning and so you do differently, you know, something's different. There's a certain um, allowance made and a sort of receptivity to the fact that you're going to be, you know, you're going to be grieving. Um, and I do think all that is very, very helpful. Um, yeah, I'm just thinking about... Um, yeah, the problem is also, I was saying before, a lot of my, my experiences through doing the therapeutic work and the job at the moment is with refugees. So working with, you know, Syrian and Afghan... Um, refugees and asylum seekers from lots of other countries and you know they most of in those cases it's the examples of the morning not being able to be uh, worked through very easily at all because you know there's no body people have disappeared um there's terrible separations not knowing if someone's alive or dead you know all these things that make it incredibly difficult to perform the rituals and do what what would help um, and I think also those rituals about the Jewish rituals and and the Irish wake it's about being together isn't it? mm -hmm. you know, it's about being together with family um, being together with very close friends and the worst aspect I think of bereavement is when you feel isolated when you feel separated you know which certainly for the refugees and asylum seekers I work with they, they they do but for anybody that can happen that that sense of you know like when somebody's died you know and you you, you go because you run out you know the next day you might go to the shops and you've you know run out of milk or something and it's just the most bizarre feeling because everybody else is going about their normal life <laughs> and you're sort of thinking well i'm not why doesn't everybody realize you know mm. that how different everything is now and the isolation that you can feel then is, is devastating. Mm. You know, you're on your own with this experience and everyone else is carrying on as though it's not happened. You know? mm. and I think that, that, that reminds me, sorry, interrupting yeah, on, there, but on. it reminds me of, um, there was, it's a tragic story of a, a, a local woman who lost her son, um, very young, I think six, six or seven years old, mm. maybe even five, mm -hmm. um, just an allergic reaction to something and he died at school just out of the blue um and you know part of the her process was you know just staring at your phone and scrolling through timelines on 
Facebook or Twitter or whatever. And, and, and I know this feeling really well, this feeling of like, why are you all continuing? Don't you mm. know what's happened? Mm. Exactly what you're talking about, going to the shop and buying some milk and everybody else is acting like nothing has changed mm. and your entire world has changed. Yeah. So she decided to, to start tweeting and um, Facebooking about, about her son and saying this is what he was like mm. and this mm. as, as her way of grieving, mm. which... Like in in one, it's not something I feel like I would ever do if I was in the same position. Um, but I absolutely understand it from from the outside at first. Before I heard that explanation, I just saw this woman tweeting about it, and I was just like, "This is bizarre. Why are you even like spending your time doing this? You've lost your son. Why aren't you, you know, just rocking backwards and forwards on the on the living room floor and not getting up and being able to function? How are you able to mm. do this? Mm. And then I saw it part of her as her grieving process. When you've got no manual, when you've got nothing to go by, you you reach for whatever it is that you can, and that was that was her way of mm. of mm. grieving. Um, when you've uh, just interested in your thoughts on on if you even if it's not tradition based, like she took it upon herself just to tweet and that was her way through through grieving. How important what's the psychological basis of being able to do things like that, like do live tweeting? What what is the benefit for the individual? Well, I think in in that particular case of somebody who has lost a child you're talking about a, a, a very, a very different. Um, it's a different kind of experience. It's a different kind of grieving from, say, me losing my parents. Um, you know, me losing my parents. There's a, there's a an appropriateness to what's happened. You know, there's a there's a normal for people to die when they're old, and there's a there's a sort of way of accepting that. I think for a parent losing a child it's a i would say it's an entirely different I don't want to say level or kind of of grief but it is um it's not something actually it's not something you can get through in the same way because it's not appropriate it, there's nothing right about it at all and for a parent who loses a child they're primary need is to keep that child with them and that's what they will do mm. and that's what they have to do um and it's not something anybody else can do for them mm. but their their need is to continue the relationship with their child and they will do that in whatever way makes sense to them mm. so um you know, that might might be... I'm going to have to be really careful what I say because I don't want to talk about any particular, you know, particular people. Sure. But every... I mean, whether it's it's the loss of a of an unborn baby or stillbirth, um, you know, everything around that experience, anything that, that, that was around the birth of the child will be incredibly precious. So any photographs, any... Um, you know, little cards, any little footprints, anything. Hospitals are very good, generally speaking, good now at, at understanding that that's that's needed. So anything that showed that that 
that baby was alive or that the you know that the parents were expecting that baby will be incredibly precious mm. um for a, a you know a child that's lived any any amount of time every every memory will be incredibly precious um you know it, it's it's so powerful because you're you're again you're absolutely in the deepest possible kind of attachment to that child and when that child is not there i'm very aware that anyone listening to this who's lost a baby you know will be yeah right you know in in these feelings and it, it will go on it's the whole life that the doesn't matter how long you live that child will always be part of your life mm. and everything around that child will always be precious and you know it's a really incredibly difficult thing because every every birthday every stage mm-hmm. every every other child the same age as your child would have been as the ghost will bring back you know that, that child and it's a it's a total love and you, you never get beyond it you, you never get through it you never get past it it's part of your part of your life yeah my um my my mum lost my brother when he was 21 Mm. it was her firstborn um and i was the last born um i was two years old when he died so i have absolutely no memory of him or Mm. i mean he wasn't living at home or anything like that so um i don't i might have only met him a couple of times i think um and as a Baby, basically a baby so you know there's no there's no memory of that at all um but this was so how old am i so it's like 40 years ago um um so he would be in his 60s now mm-hmm. um and she still has the the photos of him next to her bed um and she still struggles every time it's his birthday mm. and it it makes me like uh, like i've got no emotional attachment to him obviously but every every time i just like even if i see the photos next to her bed i'm just like how can you do this to yourself like this is this is painful to me to to witness just to know that you're carrying around this this pain and this sadness within mm. you and you just get on with things like it's mm. it's 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 you know it's making me choke up just to even explain it now mm. that like it's actually the saddest I, I i guess i understand it not more now i've been a father for the last sure. seven years sure. it's obviously something i'm just like oh god that would be the most awful thing that could ever happen to yeah. anybody yeah. um but to know that it, it never that never leaves, like I feel like like you were saying that if you lose a parent or a friend or something, that eventually you you kind of accept that and you don't have this. It's a different type of grief, I guess. And that's I guess I haven't even considered that in in the approach to this podcast that actually it's not different levels of grief; they're actually just different types of grief. But the traditions mm. remain the same and the, the reactions from people remain the same. So if you've lost, I guess, yeah, no, if I'd, if someone I know loses a child, I'm obviously going to talk to them very differently than if I would if they've lost a parent. I guess I would approach that differently. But the the sense of knowing what to do for anybody that's 
has lost somebody is a real, real significant thing. I think also I'm really conscious that as I get older, I think about it more and more. Mm. And I wonder whether that's mm. a selfish thing because I'm thinking about my own mortality or whether it's, um, whether it's uh, knowing that my mum's going to die at some point, not into too, too distant future. And I get more upset about thinking about my kids missing their grandparents mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. I do mm-hmm. about me missing my own mum. Mm. Um, because I think you've got that fond connection of like, I know my grandparents, that was, that was a place of just sheer happiness every time I was there because they're grandparents right mm. and they're they're there literally just to go well we've we don't have to look you look after you all the time we'll spoil you for a bit we'll have lots of fun and then you can go again and then we can just do whatever we want we don't have the you're not going to get told off by your grandparents at any particular time because you're there for the fun and you'll get plied with sweets and whatever like mm. that's that's the license of the the grandparents so that's that's the source of sadness. I don't really know where I'm going with this ramble. That I'm, I've, mm. I've backed myself into a corner. Mm. Um, mm. Well, having, you know, we've got our, our little grandson who's 17 months now. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the, the best fun I have, you know, and have had for many, many years is, is spending time with him. You know, it's the most, I, I couldn't have imagined, you know, how what a natural bond there would be and how incredible it is. You know, it's just the most wonderful, wonderful thing. I, I don't even want to start even letting the thought of losing your grandchild come into my own mind. I couldn't even bear to think about it now. Um, because, you know, it's it's got, it's the whole relationship has that fundamental joy about it you think you know maybe never going to get again when your own children leave home and (laughs) and Mm. grow up but you do you know it's this again it's something i think you know deeply deeply biological and deeply physical do you do you think that's that's interesting because i've been thinking about this in the sense of grief and loss because i've got um i've got two children a seven-year-old and a three-year-old and i'm acutely aware of how massively different the different stages are as they grow up um mm. and the bit that i really love is around the ages between two and four years old two mm. and five mm. um and obviously one of them's now outside of that i'm not saying i don't <laughs> love him any less but yeah. that really cute stage when they're just like reckless abandon and uh, mm. you know everything's new and all mm. of that stuff mm. and you know people very very rightly um although it doesn't do anything for me or always saying oh you know enjoy it while you've got it because it will change and then they grow up and do you think there's a sense of loss with your own children when they've when they become as they start become teenagers and adults and obviously that you've got that very painful moody stage (laughs) um and then eventually they come back to you but is it the loss of those children because you, you you're gaining another another human right that, that, that person's still there but they've changed so considerably you've yes, lost it and yes. is it is there a sense of grief around that so when they have when you've got the grandchildren that are that have come from those from your children you're like oh wow this is this is my chance to connect to that that person that I lost a long time ago uh, I mean I, I, can, I can't talk about this in general I can talk about my own experience and I'm very aware my three adult children may listen to this at some point so <laughs> Again, I have to be a bit careful what I say, um, but and I and this was something I didn't know would happen, and I didn't 
you know, I had no idea this was going to happen. But the it, the sense of satisfaction when your kids, um, you know, six, make a success of their lives, if I could put it that way, you know, leave home and manage to become independent in, in some way is absolutely massive. I mean, it's a beautiful feeling. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, I think teenage can be very difficult for parents, you know, very difficult. But that's only because your kids are becoming independent. That's the whole the whole point of the whole thing is that your kids are becoming independent. And, you know, you, you just have to do a lot of letting go. Um, but if you want to have, you know, sort of healthy, independent kids, you've got to, you know, my mantra is you have to trust them. And, and you do have to let go. You have to be there if they need if they need you. But you have to trust them to get on with their stuff and their lives, and you know. And then the feeling of absolute pleasure when they, you know, they're adults and they still. I used to have this thing. Used to joke with with my husband. Um, you just say when they were little, I say, "Oh well, probably you know, one of them will go to Australia, and one of them will be in prison, and one will live around the corner and refuse to talk to us." <laughs> and that was how I kind of, you know, kind of imagined the worst, and it's got to be better than that. Um, but the fact that they, you know, they all do talk to us, and they're all you know, amazing people, great people. Um, it's yeah, it, it, it's a great, great joy, great, great joy, and great, great satisfaction. Even though it's nothing to do with us, you know, they're their own people. They always were their own people. Um, mm. But I guess, a, I guess, what I was getting at with the the. Um, grandchild thing and the and the toddler thing for for when they change and get older is is that is that a form of grief not the grandchild thing but is it kind of like a so you go through the grieving process like I know somebody that won't even look at their pictures of their kids when they were toddlers and stuff because it's too painful mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. and she has difficult teenagers because they're teenagers right like it's mm. um so she's she's grieving the loss of those innocent children where it was always fun and you know you could get away with doing things they're also quite placid and you know mm-hmm. moldable back then <laughs> when they're, when they're not actual teenagers resisting their parent whatever they say um yeah. so i'm just wondering if that's a, that that manifests itself as a type of grief and then when grandchildren come along I, you I, kind of, I can't make any comment about anybody else um uh, for my own part, I think William, my husband, would say the same. You know, um, we it, it was there wasn't a lot of grief around, but our children weren't placid and moldable. <laughs> you know, they, they could be stroppy and difficult as as toddlers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they were you know adorable, of course, you know, but they were also. Um, I think you know they they were very different from each other they were definitely each of them very strong willed they were their own people and and I and again um, my own kind of philosophy was to trust them and pretty much let them get on with it um you know keep them fundamentally safe but other than that a very strong sense that they do their own growing up and kind of that's what they did really mm. so yeah i want to say there wasn't grief yeah i remember the first day at school i was having a little tear on the way home you know um and uh when <laughs> i'm never, never allowed to lift this down you know when we took um rosie off to university i insisted on making her bed before i left <laughs> oh. 
<laughs> that's incredibly nice. <laughs> that sort of thing, you know. So yes, you know, if it, you feel all that, and of course, you know, lots of worry about them, worry what they get up to, you know, and are they all right? But I worry about them far more when they're back visiting us if they don't come home. When they're away from home, I never used to worry really. Right. Once they were established in their own lives. I mean, I think I I think I'm grieving already whilst they're going through the the stage that I really enjoy. Like it's a very, you know, they'll do something cute, and I'm suddenly sad about the like. Look how lovely this is, and um, and I'm already thinking about how long I've got for for that kind Mm. of backwards and forwards love, Mm. um, Mm. and care and nurture that I can give that. Obviously, I will care and nurture for them as they're older and I'll worry about them and all the other other things. But whilst they're innocent and need a parent, someone to hold their hand through life, I, I, I'm really conscious that I'm kind of lamenting when that goes before it's even... I'm not living in the moment. I am most of the time. But mm. there is this part of me that's going, oh, this won't last forever. You, mm. you know, enjoy it while you can. Yeah. Which is kind of making uh, you miss it. And it doesn't last forever. And and I, I have a shockingly bad memory. Uh, I actually barely remember what it was like to have small children. Mm. I'm like, I look at the photos and sort of think, oh, yeah, that's what it was like. But I don't actually remember very much about it at all, which is, mm. that's partly just, just me. So I have, to, I have to live in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> but the moment's great. Well, this <laughs> no. Is, no, this is it's very true. I mean, like even with my seven-year-old, I can look back on videos and go, "I have no memory of him yeah. being like this." Yeah, yeah. Um, because obviously, he's so different now. Mm. You know, when he was two to what he is now, like mm. it's, it's such a massive difference. And but I do find that I'm videoing everything that I'm like, oh, "Okay, I've got to video this because I I want to look back on it." But mm. actually, yeah. I remember the first time I started to look back at my like I think he was six. Um, and I looked back at some videos and I, I was almost angry yeah. um, because, well, I don't even know why. I, it was just, it, there was a, a real sense of loss of this person. Even though I've got this other person, there's, there was a sense yes. of this loss of like, I really yeah. loved that it's child. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I think one thing I wanted to say was that, um, you know, in, in respect of, of any sort of loss or bereavement, but you know, particularly when somebody's died, um, one of the things that's most important is what you do with the actual clothes, photographs, books, stuff mm. that's connected with that with that person. And the 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 I think the people that I've worked with um, over a long, long time, uh, you know with one client for a long time this has been the most important thing is is what what the client what the person what myself actually chooses to do with that letter that book that piece of clothing Mm. um it 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 can make a huge difference the timing of it so people i know who've tried to clear everything out straight away um sometimes have just not been able to so Mm. i remember one um, was actually a friend whose wife died very, very young and, and you know, not long after they were married. And he said, I, I thought I'd just sort out her clothes today. And after half an hour, I was I was crying so much that I had to realise that that was all I could do. I could only do half an hour. I couldn't do any, any mm-hmm. more. And it took me weeks and weeks and weeks to work through that. And other people who have left um, left a room untouched for sometimes for years 
and there's come a right time when they were able to actually open that cupboard and take that you know that letter out and and think about it and decide what to do with it um or giving things away as as gifts to other people mm. but um, i think it it's it's tremendously important you know but especially if it's a child who's who's died mm. um it it really matters you know and you need to give yourself as long as it takes and give it the the full weight of importance you know what do you want to do with this particular article um and give yourself you know really go into it deeply what would help what would help me would it be to you know to give that to somebody or to frame it or to put it away in a special box or you know do I want that photograph out on show or or not what you know what um what piece of material would I want to wrap it around in what would make it feel most precious mm. um what color would help would a candle in front of that photo help you know there's many ways of doing things you know something in the garden do we want to have a special place in the garden or a special place in a um you know in a park uh, want to pay for a bench somewhere you know don't want to there's there's many many things you can do but objects really matter mm-hmm. um really really matter so to give them their their absolutely full full weight full due before you decide and it can really really help Mm. Yeah. Is that because there's it's a it's a physical manifestation of the person you've lost? It, it's it's a physical manifestation of the person you've lost, and you still have your life to mm. to live. So you you actually have to do something with those those things that make sense sense to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not really for the person who's died. It's it's for you and maybe your family and maybe their friends and you know it's it brings them into the into the living current relationships in a in a really really can be really really helpful so so the act way. of 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 taking those things and either passing them on or getting rid of them in in whatever way is is kind of you le- saying to yourself i'm letting you go i'm letting this go it, it might be i'm letting you go i'm letting this go or it might be i'm holding on to you and i want you really close to mm-hmm. me permanently it it can be it can be anything mm. that it's meaning but the important thing is that you get that meaning right for for mm-hmm. you and sometimes of course people need to you know like parents need to talk with each other for example you know what they might not agree and it can be incredibly difficult you know for bereaved parents both feeling um profound profound emotions but maybe quite contradictory um mm-hmm. needs about about things can be very very difficult indeed so give it time give it a lot of time a lot of patience you know and what might be right for one person might not be right for you know for the other i guess i'm i'm feeling that this is actually quite a ritualistic thing that we're talking about because you're taking you're you're taking a physical embodiment of the person that you've lost and you're you are making a ritual of either I'm deciding to keep this on me forever I'm deciding to give this to someone significant I'm deciding just to yes. clear it all up but you are making a ritual out of I am now doing 
the thing yes. that, that yes, helps I think, me I think so. yeah. move yeah. on. Not move on as in forget about, but move on as in yes. go to the next step of yes. of my grief yes. with this person. I think that's really yeah. significant. Yes, it, it is. And, and, you know, some um, people, I mean, for some people, for example, ashes are you know, incredibly significant. Some people might have um, little sort of piece of jewellery made of, of ashes which they'll want to mm. you know, to wear all the time. For other people that's, you know, the ashes might be scattered in the place that was very significant. So when you go back to that place, you know, you you remember the person. Mm. Um, so it, it's it's what's right for you, is what will help what will help you in holding on to what you want to hold on to and letting go of what you want to let let go of. Nobody else can tell you what to do. So, going back to tradition, mm. and what do you, what do you think? What do you think has? This is a big question, but what do you think has contributed towards the decline of tradition in British culture around grief? <laughs> well, I mean, I purely guess guesswork, and I'm thinking again about my. Syrian and Afghan clients. So the biggest difference, I think, between the cultures is is family, is our our you know the, in the UK our lack of family uh, closeness, our, our lack of family connection. Um, our our it's, it's partly to do with the role of women it's partly geographical moving around the country uh, and it's partly you know education there's all sorts of reasons but one of the one of the biggest things that that the um you know the clients that I have talked to me about is why why you know why don't you why why don't you live close to your family you know why why don't you why don't people here sort of um look after their old people you know why why don't children stay living close to their parents mm. um so on the whole by and large here we we don't i mean some some communities do you know mum and adult daughter live next door to each other that that happens um but more generally people are spread all over the country and you know all over the place and so i think we've lost um a sense of that natural and deliberate passing down of tradition it might be how you cook a certain meal. It might be, you know, prayers, or it might be, you know, getting together on a Friday night if you're, you know, for a Jewish family, or, um, you know, it, keeping Ramadan with your family, you know. But it, we we have lost a lot of that. I mean, Christmas is probably the, the only real time when we do that. The complete assumption for most people that they're going to be with their family. Mm. And they're going to eat certain things, and they're going to you know go back to their childhood Christmas rituals is what most of us sort of want to do, and you know we assume that's what we'll do. It's about the only time of year, isn't it, really, where that mm. that happens? Mm. So I think by and large, you know, it's uh, I don't know. What, what do you think? You know, <laughs> well, it's, it's the it's the big question for me. I mean, I th from what you're saying, I really. <sighs> It, it, it suggests it points towards the fact that, that 
So I'm asking the questions to myself as you as you said that. So, so why are we living further apart? Is it because um, families are a pain in the ass, or is it that um, we have the ability to easily travel to you know any corner of the globe? But also, is it necessity through study through work has has the work life balance overtaken the what is work now far ahead of like family life that we actually go actually no my career is more important than being close to my family mm. um so can i just up sticks and go okay well on the other side of the country there's this really great job job and i'm going to go there or i'm going to move to london because london's where all the money's at or where it, you know where all the opportunity is so i'll i'll move there even though my family's from birmingham or whatever you know mm. um so I'm wondering whether whether it's the state of capitalism and and the push for 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 work that's actually driving apart families that's driving a, a lack of tradition around grief. I think that's a really interesting provocation. I mean, I I can really remember. Um, for the purposes of the listeners out there, I was born in 1979, um, and I remember as a child how how different not only my family but the community was. I didn't, you know, grow up in a in you know a, a northern mining town or anything like that. It wasn't it wasn't like a close knit community as you, uh, archetypal, um, uh, you know, community that's driven around work. This was a place in peterborough that's just an overspill for london essentially mm. um but there was a sense of community people mm. did walk into each other's doors people were mm. you know relying on each other can you just watch the kids while i go and do this and you know like very much everybody knew each other and hung around with each other i see that a lot less now it's you choose your friends you have your core group of friends you stick you, you're polite to the neighbors or whatever but you don't you don't yeah. visit them too often yeah. or anything like that uh, but I also see the same with family. I think people get estranged from their family a little bit. That like there is like, well, sometimes your family might be a pain in the ass. This is like, you know, you can't choose your family, right? Um, we, I don't know, I don't know what I mean by we either, really. <laughs> but we sometimes, you know, might look at, um, say, the you know women in the Syrian families or the Afghan families or other families who might actually really want to be at home you know their great greatest pleasure is to is to is to be at home mm. is to be with their family you know to look after their kids to cook beautiful meals um but they would have been doing that with a large group of women relatives so back home, they you know they would be living very close to each other in the same apartment block or around the same sort of quadrangle, and they would get together every day. They would cook together, and they, you know, the children would, you know, be with all the other all the other sort of aunties and so on, and you know, would sort of it would never they were never lonely. It might be a bit oppressed, but they weren't lonely. Mm. But we we sort of assume that that's wrong. And that going out to work and having your freedom and having your individuality is right. Mm. But um, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong. I'm just saying it's a different way of life. 
that had has its own absolutely has its own beauty and its own meaning mm. um and yes you know i'm very aware that you know there's a downside to that and there can be a lot of hidden you know domestic violence and i'm not you know i'm not stupid about these things but i'm i think we have lost something i i do i think we've lost something um and i think we're a lot a lot lonelier mm. than than people used to be mm. um so you know i i, I always feel that with the the clients and I visit people at home, which I used to do a lot. You know, the, the the generosity and the depth of hospitality and generosity and pleasure that they have in in um, having people visit, you know, is it's just puts us to shame. Absolutely puts to sh- puts us to shame. You know, mm. um, and we've lost a lot of that. Mm. Um, one of my one of my client said to me uh, a couple of weeks ago said I, you know, I don't I don't see many of my neighbors going into people's houses people I said well it, it's a little bit because of covid I think we've got a little bit unused to going into people's houses but it's also because people are quite sort of quite wary to let you in until they get to know you and and, and trust you you know then they might invite you in and let you in but we're you know we're a little bit less sort of less willing to do that whereas yeah. for the the people the syrian afghan people i've got to know the ethiopian and you know sudanese people this is this is the stuff of life this most important thing in life is to have people in and and feed them and talk with them and enjoy their company and share what you have with them that's what they most want to do you know so uh, yeah, I think we've got we've lost we've lost something. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, um, just remembering times where I do do those things, like I absolutely love it at the time, and I think I should do this more often. Mm. And then I obviously never do. It's as, as something that just stops stops mm. me or anybody else following that that pattern, which is really fascinating in itself. And I, I think it's really interesting that that could lead on to this loss of tradition of like how then we care for other people that might be grieving, for mm. example. Mm. Um, because you're not learning vicariously through watching other people communicate with each other. When you know when you're in a community, mm. you see these things unfold in front of you, and then you learn yes, what to do, right? Yes. And and I just remember I've told you this story before, Jack. <laughs> I don't remember. You know that my husband William was was a minister uh, in Oxford um, with a Punjabi uh, Christian Punjabi community from Indian Punjab, and uh, I mean funerals in that community, the the women would be uh, around the coffin hugging all hugging and holding each other and screaming together you know crying and sobbing and and it's a huge you know huge communal noise all holding each other and 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 i remember william telling me one day that he'd asked a very you know a lady that we knew very well in that congregation you know what's that like and she said oh william it's wonderful Mm, i bet (laughs) it's wonderful (laughs) So <laughs> you just let it all out, she said. Just let it all out. Yeah, exactly. I mean, exactly. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, that does sound wonderful. I mean, I would just enjoy that as a, regardless of whether I'm grieving or not. I'd love a big group cry. But 
I can't imagine that ever. I can't imagine that happening to a group of. When I'm saying um, British culture, by the way, I just want to clarify that it is a specific part of British mm. culture that I'm talking about, and that mm. is white British culture. I realise there are other forms of British culture that aren't white British culture. Um, but I can't imagine that ever happening. I can't imagine that that exact scenario of of, of uh, en masse grieving and um, publicly being able to show that, that you're in a lot of pain, uh, but you're letting it all out. I can't, even if everybody got together and said, no, of course, we, sh- we, we allow this to happen, it should happen. Mm. I can't imagine it. it. Do you think the British psyche of that stiff upper lip thing kicks in as well? I know we've talked about... The, the idea that you know we've grown apart as a as as a community as a family, but also this this idea that you know just get on with it. Well, it it, it happened over Princess Diana, didn't it? I mean, that was a big example of the British public doing doing things very differently. Collective uh, mourning. Collective mourning. Mm. You know, very public grieving, very public crying. Um, I don't know. Tempted to say sometimes f- football maybe does that achieve some some kind of communal mm. emotion that you know one way or the other you know for joy or grief I don't know. Well, is it? I don't, I'm going to approach this with a healthy dose of cynicism, um, but I feel like in a football scenario that you're talking about, yeah, you're right. If if for example. <laughs> fairly recently there was the um the euros that you know england nearly won Mm. Uh, well i say nearly um you know what i mean um but that collective grief was there on show everybody you know tears were absolutely fine but there's an acceptable grief isn't there when it when it's kind of like you know it's acceptable to be um, a man and be fanatical about football it's not so acceptable, in inverted commas, to be a man and be fanatical about um, knitting, I, I, you know, whatever. Like, there's, there's, there's this kind of o- o- almost macho kind of like, yeah, of course, football means everything, so you can cry about that. That's absolutely fine. But anything that isn't deemed within the, the, the unspoken rule of, look, you can't cry about that. Like you, you can't get upset about something else mm. that you find significant. I, you know, just for mm. just for balance' sake, um, and I'm sure lots of people will th- think this is very weird, but I can barely get through the first ten minutes of the Lord of the Rings trilogy without bursting into tears um, because of my own life connections to to the films, but also. Um, just how beautiful it is and the stories that are within it and you know that that but like am i allowed to publicly is that is that acceptable to the rest of society most people would laugh me out Mm. of the room right but you could be like what's wrong with you whereas it's absolutely fine to cry about football so i guess what i'm arguing is is that there's are there times what there are times where you know acceptable sanitized versions of like no this is this is fine because we've all agreed that we're behind the national team mm. of whatever sporting mm. event mm. and so but then we're allowed to grieve or you know we're all for the royals right so but that that is a bit what ritual is isn't it i mean r- ritual yeah is an agreement that in this at this time in this place in this way 
we can together do something. Mm. That's what a ritual is. Yeah. It, it makes it okay to, to go. So I think it's really, I've got in my mind very strongly at the moment, you know, proclaimers sunshine on leaf. Partly because that's where our sun lives, <laughs> but that you know that 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 video of the 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 whole crowd you know singing sunshine sunshine on leaf you know yeah. the, the hymns is it mm. <laughs> <laughs> but you know the whole the football crowd just singing this whole song you know um, my heart was broken my heart was broken sorrow 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 you know and then you've got somebody who's almost like um, you know the proclaimers are leading a service They're saying it's okay to feel this you know mm. my tears are drying my tears are drying thank you thank you thank you thank you mm-hmm. you know i mean it's it's as it's as much of much of a liturgical ritual uh, you know uh, accepting uh, full of emotion as you can as you can get um i think that's yeah i mean that's a really thing. good point i mean it again reminds me of Liverpool's "You'll Never Walk Alone" yeah. thing with that, that, like, I, I think you can't help but get choked up when you see tens of thousands of football fans singing that song yeah. together, a song about helping each other weathering the storm together, and yeah. you know yeah. that that's that's powerful stuff, it's very powerful, incredibly mm-hmm. powerful. Um, but your comment about it being isn't this tradition in itself? Yes. It is. I agree. Yeah, that that is a, a form of tradition. But I guess I'm not questioning whether we have tradition or not. I think anymore. I said it was a form of a, ri- a ritual. Ritual. A ritual sorry. contains. Yeah. Okay. So ritual is different to. I, I I guess. What I'm thinking. Yeah. Go on. No. Sorry. I'm I'm sort of getting into rambly mode now. <laughs> no, I just just thinking about uh, somebody. Um, I knew many years ago, um, and he, who was a professional football hooligan, and he got um, paid. <laughs> as good as so, his whole week was preparing for the next match, and thinking about it, and planning with his mates where they would start the rampage, and where they would meet the police, and how they'd get tanked up, and exactly what it would be like. And this was like, every Saturday night. It was kind of. <laughs> This is what what they did, or Saturday is what they did, and uh, you know it was a ritual. It was a containing ritual that contained uh, a lot of aggression, a lot of anger, a lot of brotherly fellow feeling, a lot of competitiveness. Um, you know, a huge kind of <laughs> I don't want to say macho, but a huge kind of outworking of something. You know, and he just did it for that few hours once a week, and the rest of the time he had a job and was kind of. <laughs> You know, got on with his life, but it, it 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 contained something that you know would have been very even more difficult if it had been let out in other other places. Mm. Well, that's it. that's actually a really interesting point. So, like within football, so you could you can have an outpouring of tears and anguish and stuff about losing a game mm. or losing the cup or whatever it is that that you've lost. Mm. Um, but you can also express sheer joy for the winning and the, mm-hmm. and then also the camaraderie. And then you've got this fighting stuff to let out something, you know, that clearly is something that's driving you to fight, right? There's something mm. deep within you. But we're, we're making, 
well, I guess what I'm what I'm suggesting here is is that are we making acceptable ways of expressing this stuff through football? So it's okay to to express the thing that I can't express normally, like my joy or my my fear and my my loss and my mm. upset, and then also the violence side mm. of things. Mm. Like this mm. is permissible, this is allowed, mm. whereas at other areas of my life it's not allowed so I have this outlet which is I guess that's healthy it's healthy to have the outlet but is it not a, a sign that there's something quite I I think so probably and I, I don't know I don't know what what you think about where sort of where men are at at the moment you know I mean I think there's a there's a big there's a sea change isn't there in at least in the media, younger men being able to cry, you know, being able to express feeling, the whole kind of, you know, dads and their new babies kind of kind of thing now, you know, which is seems to be quite quite a new a new thing. And I think about again, you know, over my twenty twenty years as a counsellor, I've had, you know, as many male clients as as female and as many men, you know, sitting and crying in their counselling sessions uh, as women um, and you know that's a story that's not told in public very often mm. um, but you know the the feelings are there the need for expression is there mm. in just the same mm. just the same way um, and often a lot of the blokes I've seen as clients will say oh, they've got one good male friend <laughs> one that they can be themselves with one that they trust completely one that they can sit and cry with you know that mm. nobody else <laughs> right. is gonna know you know it's just 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 the one you know whereas women i think do you know do tend to have a group of, of female friends that they can can be with and can talk to and can thrash things out with and can you know can sort of express mm. a certain amount of feelings that's really interesting to me in the sense that like i am blessed with having a big group of friends that i've known since school mm. um and we're even at school we were very open and honest with each other and tears were fine and mm. you know we we didn't we certainly weren't cool cool kids in 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 the school but we certainly weren't the the, the biggest nerds no we actually yes we were <laughs> um maybe just not the biggest nerds mm. um you know we were into school into music and um rebelling slightly but just the, the permissible amount of rebelling not not pushing it too far um so and i still have them as close friends so mm. i guess i'm slightly ignorant to to what it's like for most most other men in in society the the, the not having that outlet we had it very early on um and i guess i take it for granted most of the mm. time do you think that contributes to the situation of surrounding grief that that, that men are supposed to be tight-lipped about emotion and again get I on don't with because I, f- I don't know how things have changed really you know i mean i think i don't know i really don't know i, I there's a sort of wartime thing isn't there of men having to having to be tough and I think that went on for a bit and we're still kind of 
When I I was a a child, I was born in 1955, you know, that was definitely the way things things still were. And then I think it it changed a lot, you know. Um, Now, I don't know, I know what my sons are like, you know, which is not not very teary sort of people, but a little Mm. bit sometimes. Lord of the Rings, yes. Really? (laughs) Star Trek. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) My kind of people. (laughs) Music, you know, various sorts of music. Uh Um, Very wide, you know, variety of music. I think music does it probably for most people more than anything else, doesn't it? Music releases emotion and channels emotion. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is interesting in the, in the sense of like talking about different ways that we connect and emote. Um, because if, actually, if we think about the modern, the modern uh, things that we have access to that we wouldn't have had access to so readily, say, a hundred years ago. So, um, I mean, mortality rates were much higher, obviously, but. Um, so we would experience death more and everything else, but we have we have access to all these different types of music and and uh, culture, so art, and, um, and then the sports that we have readily access access to. To just even if we watch on television, so you know you might support somebody that's on the other side of the country, and mm. but you get to see that on a regular basis. So you can you know you can connect around all these different things that you have, and and almost like you know as I was saying at school, we were the we were the geeky kids that were into music, right? So we had our thing, our community. That was that was what everything was based around. So everybody gets to carve out those little pockets. Whereas, you know, we're only talking about a, a very short time ago where it's like, well, this is where you're growing up. This is your community. Get on with it. Like, this is where you base your life around. This is how you connect. You connect around your existence in this area this is this is like you're involved in the community because everybody's involved in something locally like you all look after your own area and each other and that kind of stuff now it's very much like oh no my life's based around a particular style of music or or whatever it may be might explain a little bit that loss of tradition again um, I don't feel like I'm clutching at straws but like I, th- I, f- I feel like there's a connection between um, siloing off into into our own subcultures, rather than um, how God intended, as it were, that we were growing up in small communities that were very close and tight knit and looked after each other and w- were able to rely on each other, and that's where tradition gets broken down, right? Uh, or um, yeah, what I guess I'm trying to draw the parallels towards are that uh, that calling it the degradation of community is probably the wrong way of saying it but the change in society mm. the massive change in society due to advancements in technology does the, does does advancement in technology ergo mean the breakdown of tradition and culture i i cannot answer that question answer me now <laughs> I, I, because uh, you know uh, i'm a such a i'm not a complete dinosaur with technology because I have to use you know I have to well because of my work I have to use the internet all the time and I have to use all sorts of things I don't understand and further back. Um, 
you know, but and I can cope with it, but I, I it drives me crazy. I've, yeah, I've, I don't, yeah, I don't mean technology in the sense of like email computers and all that kind of stuff. I guess I mean well, like the ability for us to be able to consume music, for example, is a lot different to what it would have been a hundred years ago. Like you wouldn't have even been able to buy a record a hundred years ago. You would have to see something live. So music didn't become like, oh, I'm really into music. Like music's my thing. I mean, you would be. You could well, be into like, yeah, but, but not you as might, a, you might would have been into singing collectively or, or in a community play, yeah. playing in a uh, you know a little band somewhere or west gallery music in in the church uh-huh. or you know all kinds or of down things the pub. down the pub you know john claire with his fiddle and you yeah know, people people made their own music didn't they uh-huh. you know so they they probably had as much i guess music. what i'm saying with subcultures um is that it, using john claire as an example very good example he went down to the pub and just met people, right? Like, whoever was there, he couldn't go, okay, I wonder who's into um, new wave punk around here and I must find them out because they're the only people I really want to connect yeah. with. It was, let's all get together. We're, like, we're into music, but I have to work with you because this is, a, you know, it's, yeah. it, takes a, it takes a day to walk to even Stamford. To, to, <laughs> so I'm not going to meet anyone there. They're going to have to be very, very local. Um, or they're going to be have to be travellers themselves. So, like, I know he um, did, hung around with a lot of gypsies a lot of the time and played mm. music with them mm. and, and learned, learned how to play music, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I guess I'm using the argument that technology has afforded us the luxury to create subcultures that then take away from having a... I mean, this is kind of redundant. I mean, you know, it's just a theory. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just, I know, you know, my my kids, my three kids, listen to a vast variety of of music. Absolutely, mm. you know, a huge variety of different genres and times of music. Um, I mean, not so much classical. I have to say, you know, they maybe dip in occasionally but they're not so interested in some classical music but um uh, you know everything i mean josh you know loves everything from whatever it's called you know death thrash metal to frank sinatra you know and is in just that's a crossover waiting to happen just right interested in music you know just and creating music and writing lyrics and so on they all listen to a huge variety of world music you know all sorts of different because that so opened up definitely you know mm. the ability to listen to many many different sorts of things and um you know i was just thinking about this i listen i'm a great radio four listener you know so i listen to things like soul music you know, mm-hmm. soul program called soul music mm-hmm. you know which is absolutely wonderful um thing that's on at the moment called um uh, add to playlist um do you know that no add to Playlist, which has got takes five pieces of music five or three or four different people just connecting up from one to the next it could be anything from ancient plain song to death thrash metal you know mm-hmm. but something will and they analyze how each piece of music works and what the connection you'd love it <laughs> <laughs> Probably absolutely would. fantastic i do you know i just think yeah music is it's it's a great great way of evoking mm. emotion and feeling but i don't know is the is crying at the beginning of Lord of the Rings different from crying when you've actually lost somebody? I think it probably is. <laughs> you know, I mean, the yeah. tears are falling, but the I suspect that there's a the feeling is 
what's happening in the body is very different. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they're you know, comparable. There's a, there's a sort of physical, you know, a physical pain to grieving. Yeah. To go back to our subject, you yeah. know. I mean, a physical pain, which is, which is horrible. You know, it's a horrible thing. Uh-huh. And, and when you feel it's, here it comes again. It's like a wave of physical grieving pain that comes over you and you just have to go with it and it overwhelms you. And then you think it will never end this crying. And then you come out the other side of it and it has ended. And then for a time it's passed. So that's this physical thing in the body that's worked its way through and out. And then for a couple of hours, maybe you wouldn't cry again. And then you think, oh my God, here it comes again. And this next wave of grief comes over you and completely overwhelms you and takes you over and you feel it'll never end. And then you come out of it again. And it's like that. I'm waving my hand up and down. It's like, you know, the ebbing and flowing of, of, of grief. Um, Mm. And people are really in, in grief is, is, is like that you can't stop it and you can't start it either you know you can't stop the wave but you can't make it happen mm-hmm. whereas there's something about that contained grief of watching a film where you can make it happen mm. over and over again if you want to you know yeah i mean I, I, not to bang on about lord of the rings too much because it's um, very self-indulgent and probably not that relevant but there is a c- connection to me with loss yes and that's what makes me cry about it and there's because within within the that? story is a, a friendship group yeah that forms over a particular issue yeah they go so they go out together to to sort out that issue mm. and then they go they separate yeah and so there's loss uh, but yeah, there's yeah. a it's, it's a beautiful story of friendship and love mm. including lots of grown men crying um they're very in touch with their emotions they're allowed to cry they're allowed but they're also allowed to be um you know strong and powerful at the same time they're allowed to be all of these things Mm. um but it's about so many things Mm. but mainly it's about love camaraderie friendship and also this the the loss of that at the end when you know at the very end you know when when frodo leaves middle earth um he he leaves because he's been through such an ordeal he can't live there anymore yeah. everything's changed for him as he says like mm. it's mm. it's not the same for him it, like the shire mm. is okay for everybody else to stay mm. in but for him it's irreversible he has to go yeah and it's the saddest thing that yeah. like his experience has changed that much oh i can't mm. even talk about it without mm. wanting to go mm. so i'll stop mm. talking about it mm. so um what you said not that i'm being ashamed about crying here, but um, it's probably not relevant for me to cry about Lord of the Rings on this podcast. But I think, you know, uh, again, this is something to do with um, refugee work, because it's horribly relevant at the moment with what's happening in Ukraine and refugees from Ukraine, you know, that sometimes people who have gone through um, that kind of, trauma that kind of destruction in their lives and those kinds of losses find it extremely difficult to live in the normal everyday world mm. it 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 it's you know it's the nature of of any kind of ptsd type you know 
condition that people have is that it's actually very difficult to live in what other people are experiencing as normal. Mm. And of course that is terribly isolating when you're talking about, you know, ex-military people or, you know, it's, um, or, or the re- or refugees, you know, it's um, very difficult to walk down an ordinary street and um, perceive it as ordinary Mm. you know what the rest of us take for granted becomes impossible so i think that you know it's a good example the the frodo example because it's true it's absolutely true mm. you know you've, yeah yeah i mean I, I think tolkien wrote it off the back of his yeah, experience in a- world war one absolutely mm. um so it does make sense mm. it on that subject like on a therapeutic basis, because we were just talking, well, you were just explaining the, the the physical thing that happens to you when you grieve and those waves of that mm. that physical unpleasant feeling, mm. deeply unpleasant. Mm. Mm. Do you think, is your experience on a, on a therapeutic level been that it's the people that don't allow that or haven't had the chance for that to happen for them. So you, some people might fight the resist, fight because it's such a horrible feeling they don't want to go through it, but some people might not have the opportunity. So you're talking about refugees that are, you know, in a war zone and they're actually fleeing for their own lives at the same time as losing somebody close to them. Mm. So I'm not saying by any means it's anyone's fault that they haven't been able to go through that, that process, but do you find that, has the most psychological damaging impact on individuals when they the situation hasn't arised where they're allowed to 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 grieve in that very painful visceral way i mean i think the most the most damaging aspect is the isolation is, is the separation and isolation that mm-hmm. people feel it's not it's not the it's not the grieving or not grieving it's the being connected or not connected the belonging or not belonging to other people okay that's the result of the feelings or or what's happened or the mm. physical separation or the you know it, that that's what is the most damaging thing whether it's you know that you've you've had a bereavement your life has carried on as normal and other people's lives has carried on but you feel utterly isolated because nobody else seems to get you get you you know no, mm. no one seems to understand what you're feeling so you're effectively you're a refugee in your own life you know, yeah. if I put it like that, yeah. and that's the thing that does the damage. But absolutely, you know. So it, w- whatever it is that, that that people go through, if they can do it together with people that love them and understand them, and you know, care for them and, and empathise with them, then it becomes a normal human experience, uh, which it is. But if your situation or the people around you, um, or sometimes your own inner inner sort of stuff, means that you can't um, experience it as a normal human experience, a shared human experience, then it becomes something that you know is terribly destructive and terribly damaging. Mm-hmm. And I think when um, you know war, what sort of war does more than anything is, is disrupt communities. And then, you know, sometimes for all manner of reasons, people sort of find themselves living somewhere where nobody wants to hear about what they've experienced in the war. Mm. Um, They have to start pretending and there's nothing more damaging than pretending 
and living a life that is not connected with what's really happened and who you really are. You know, where, whether it's a sort of geographical separation or an emotional separation or a cultural separation or whatever it is, you know, not being able to be the person that you really are, the loneliness of that uh, is, is just very, very dis- destructive. And that's that's not exclusively a. Uh, you're not talking about the experience with working with refugees. I'm either. talking about any, anybody and everybody. Mm. I mean, it's the it's the thing with any any kind of um, mental illness, mental ill health. Mm. You know, the feeling that it's I'm alone with it, the feeling that nobody else gets me, the feeling that no one else can understand this this thing I'm feeling. That you know, that's that's the damaging aspect of it. Mm. So, you know, we, t- we use the word normalisation uh, or psychoeducation, you know, because you're sort of saying to me, no, this is not feeling, the fact that you are feeling like that subjectively does not cut you off from the rest of the human world. It just, you know, because it's normal, you know, actually these feelings go with the territory. Yes, if you've been through that sort of trauma, you will feel like this, you know, and, and here it is, it's a common human response to what has been a an uncommon event that's mm. happened to you you know it's a normal response to an abnormal situation but what people feel is they are abnormal and they're not they're not crazy they're not anything they're just being human in a situation that no human being should have to have to endure and you know, so so the the whole I mean, the essence of trauma work, if you like, is to reconnect people to to community. That's the first thing that that needs to happen is that reconnection with with their own community, right? So before any sort of therapeutic work or right, anything like that, okay, it's the reconnection with. with but do you, so in the therapeutic sense, do you, do you do you try and make space to allow that person to? do the grieving that they didn't originally do is that is that delayed grieving seen as a helpful process to go through eventually or is it something that you try and steer um i mean it, theoretically yes you 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 know it's helpful mm. to to grieve but it it can take years or it can never happen and it certainly isn't something that you sort of feel ought to happen or ought to happen at a certain time or you try to make it happen that's absolutely that's my experience of working long long term with 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 clients is that there's a right time and that's that's the right time to feel things and sometimes you know the situation around is not it's not right it's not safe for somebody to feel those feelings because the situation around them is not safe mm-hmm. and and this sense of dis- disconnection you know so what people do is they say survive you know they survive as best they can and almost you know you know almost any sort of behavior you can be seen in terms of surviving the best you can um some things are not are not resolvable some things are not safe it's not safe to grieve some things, some realities, some truths. It's not safe to allow yourself to know to know them, mm. um, and that's not for the therapist or anybody else to rush rush the process along and say you ought to feel this or you ought to feel that. Mm. But if once 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 you're safe physically, once you're safe emotion safe enough emotionally, once you know you're you're not going to be destroyed, then you know maybe five, six, seven 
20, 30, 40 years later, you know, some some of those. It never goes away. That grieving is always there to be grieved. Mm. But there's a right time for things. And it's not for anybody else to say when, you know, when that is. Do you think that's a part of the, the, the sense that gr- grief never leaves you? Do you think that's a... Uh, a, a nugget of information or knowledge that people don't tend to have that's actually super helpful to know i i think i think to 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 sort of honor that the it's the you know it's the other side of love um you know i mean i think c.s lewis said it you know if you love anything even a dog your heart will be broken mm-hmm. you know maybe especially a dog sometimes but you know it, it's if you love you you know you have given yourself to you have become attached to you know that person that thing that house that animal that whatever has become part of you you know if you are if you lose it or if you're torn away from it it's torn away from you you know you have to let go of it it you you know it's a physical tearing and there's going to be hurt there's going to be wounds there's going to be rawness there's going to be you know there's going to be sorrow it goes with love it's the other side it's the other face of love Mm. you can't have the one without the other yeah (laughs) you know you just you just can't it's an expression of that. I saw a, um, a clip of an interview with Andrew Garfield, who um, he was on some chat show or another, but um, he recently just lost his mother. And um, the interviewer asked him about it, and he starts to cry pretty much straight away. And he's like, look, I'm fine with this, by the way. I love talking about this. Mm. Um, I'm happy to cry. Uh, essentially, I mean, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but... Um, he said, but he basically said, "This is this this is an expression right now of all the time, times that I didn't say I loved her and I told her every day. Mm-hmm. This is all this is all just a manifestation of of my loss uh, of my love mm. that I wasn't able to express to her mm. because I didn't express all of it. And it was such a beautiful mm. thing to mm. say because mm. it's absolutely yeah. spot on. It's yeah. like, yeah." It's, it, in seconds he got across like this this real sense of like you you got it you know what this grief yeah. is and you're working through it in a very uh, I, I don't want to say sensible or mature or because th- those words aren't right but it just just uh, it was appropriate it was the yeah. right thing to be doing just letting himself go do you know what this is how I feel and you know there's nothing I could have done while she was around for me to yeah. to yeah. to express my love even more for her but that when that's been taken away that's mm. like yeah mm. within within british culture what do you think we could do to make what steps would you like if you, you could wave a magic wand what steps what would you like to see changed in british culture to allow in, in respect of grief grief and acceptance of grief and the way people treat each other i mean any avenue of it really it could be like you know lessons that we can all learn or things that we can offer or um, I think that's something to do with time, maybe. You know, just just to allow time 
for things and and maybe something to do with space as well I, I mean I'm a guilt, very guilty of this of distracting myself through you know watching tv or listening to the radio or just any number of distractions and I think there's there's something that that needs you almost have to honor it by giving it time and space and quiet um, not being distracted mm. so, so I think we're we're not very you know we're not very good at that Swi- switching off the tv just just going for a walk you know mm. just sitting quietly in a room somewhere or even in bed you know just just giving yourself an empty space and and sort of allowing allowing some yourself to feel whatever you're feeling you know mm. without without judgment so i think that's one thing i think life is very 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 full of noise and relentless news and relentless distractions and relentless feelings of missing out if you're not doing something mm. and i don't think that's helpful at all mm. Um. yeah that's interesting because i am absolutely guilty of constantly trying to distract myself Mm. even if i'm not even sure there's anything really wrong (laughs) there's still Mm. this oh i can't be left alone with my own thoughts yeah that would be dangerous yeah but you you walk you walk in the woods, or is that just with the kids? Or uh, no, I'm usually with someone if I'm yeah on a walk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think just just walking on your own is is really I find really 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 good. Mm. Just go and sit by the river sometimes, you know, and just just sit, <laughs> don't do anything. <laughs> you know, just sit. I think writing as well, you know. I draw, you know, draw and paint. So sometimes just just allowing allowing words to flow, allowing paint to flow, sort of just letting it letting it happen. All that can be can be useful. It's not the, it's not so much the grieving; it's the sort of finding a finding an expression, finding a channel for for things. I mean, I'm not. I'm not especially grieving at the moment, but with my, you know, with the my, the work that I do, I take on, I take on an awful lot of people's grief, mm. and it's again, it is very physical. You know, when you sit in a room with somebody who's grieving, you take all that into your body, and you know, I'm not not super good at letting go of it, but then I know what to do and walking, going for a little jog, you know, <laughs> having a walk. Um, when in the summer, getting in the river and having a swim actually was the best, 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 best thing. Um, uh, you know, just getting, it sounds such a cliche, but it's so true, you know, getting into nature, you know, where I, 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 where I work, there's a big, big garden. And I went out this morning, it was most beautiful, it's a little bit of frost on the, on the ground, you know, on the on the grass, and the sun was just coming through, and you know, just walking around the garden and touching touching leaves and looking at the trees, you know, it just changed completely changed the way I felt, mm. um, and I do quite quite a lot of that with with my clients as well. Um, it's just a privilege to have that that garden. And we're just while we're talking, we'll just go and walk around the garden and just smell the odd flower and you know talk about what's growing and you know that's a 
Mm. That's really beautiful. It's really helpful. So it's not it's not just allowing the grief. It's something about creating a context, or just in, enjoying a context. You know where the grieving isn't going to destroy you. I think mm-hmm. where you know I think the natural world, the world of you know, nature, just can just help help with that. Um, you do. I mean. I, you said that you you take these things on when you're talking to somebody in a in a therapeutic context. So someone's grieving with you, and you you physically take that on. And I think that's a, an experience that most people are familiar with, right? You when you talk to someone, you're not just like blankly having a conversation with them. You're you're taking on their experience as well. I guess I'm just thinking, is that, is that a reason why people are hesitant to want to be around mm. people that are grieving? Because they know that they'll be taking it on for themselves as well. Yeah, I, I think it's that you, it's not that people don't want to take it on, it's that people want to make it better. Right. And that's what you can't do. Yeah. Um, you can't fix it. You can't make it less painful. And you don't have to make it less painful. So if you're with somebody who is grieving, um, don't try to fix it for them. Mm. There's no fixing it. But you can just accept whatever it is they're feeling. You don't have to do anything at all. You don't do anything about it. You just have to be with them, mm. be in their, you know, in the presence of them and them in the presence of you. And... Let them feel whatever they, whatever they feel, and that's difficult. Mm. That's quite a difficult thing to do, because our, our automatic uh, desire is to help in some way, make it less painful, make it better. Mm. But you can't. But if you can, you know, stand, sit with them, and let them feel whatever they feel. And let them do whatever they need to do as well. And some of it can be quite strange. It can be quite difficult. Some of the things people say sometimes, you don't have to worry about that. You know, you have to do anything about it. You just accept that's what they need to do at the moment. Uh, that's the best thing you can do. Really. Mm. Um, and I mean, to be perfectly blunt, if if it if it's too much, you know, for 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 you, that, I mean, that's why therapists are trained. <laughs> You know, it's why we have supervision. It's why we have somewhere we can go to offload stuff to our with our supervisors, because it's not easy. This yeah. thing being being with people in pain, it's not it's not easy. Okay, so if you've got this far, then you know that that conversation covered a lot and was quite long. Um, and I think I can talk for us both when we say when I say we walked away feeling like it was some kind of therapy session for both of us. Um, there was some, and I definitely took away some big insights from that conversation, um, particularly the idea that a breakdown of community, as we know it or has no, have known it has led on to less healthy traditions around grief. That was a really interesting part of the conversation for me. Um, but also that we need to embrace grief, however hard that that might be. Um, 
And it is. We know that. It's a process and might remain a lifelong one, but that's okay. Uh, if you have any comments to add, please do add them on the podcast format of your choice. Um, I would genuinely like to hear feedback um, and any thoughts that you guys have out there. Um, this is the first one. I'm going to be following up with a lot more, but uh, just like to know any any kind of feedback, positive or not. Try and be kind, though. Um, and if you'd like to do that kind of subscribe and like thing, then great. Anyway, thanks very much for listening. Hope to speak to you again soon. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.